Dear God, thank you for a Friday afternoon to huddle up. Think about this momentous hour in human history that we, if we can put it this way, we got the luck of the draw. We get to be living at this time in Earth's history. What does it mean? This crazy economy. How do we relate to that? How are you going to get us through? What are you saying to us in the midst of this fiscal meltdown? Make, make our time together and today's teaching clear. For Christ's glory, we pray in his name. Amen. Come on in. If you come in, grab a study. Where should we put these study guides, Craig? Should we just put them right by Karen there? And, uh, and then a few in the back. All right, good. Since this is a medical professional gathering, tell you about a hospital. Yeah, you'll need a pen. Study, those of you coming in, grab study guides. In fact, sir in the blue shirt, would you mind being the one to grab these? When people come in behind you, just tell them uh, to grab a study guide. Bless you. Thank you. Large hospital, city hospital. Neonatal unit. Somebody put up a sign right outside as you're going in to those precious charges, those little babies. They wanted to alert the employees, just a reminder. So the sign read, the first five minutes of life are critical. Hallelujah. It's true, isn't it? Craig, your family practice. Wouldn't that be right? Absolutely. Yeah. First five minutes of life are critical. That sign was up for days. Finally, someone came along and scribbled under it these words, the last five minutes ain't so hot either. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I believe we are living today very close to the last five minutes. Amen. You'd expect a preacher in the Adventist church to say that, so I'm going to just get that out right here at the beginning. We're going to look at some numbers right now. I believe the story of the U.S. economy may be the most significant story to unfold prophetic reality. I started collecting uh, news pieces since March of 08, the Bear Stearns meltdown. You remember that? One of my uh, college classmates works for the uh, General Conference Insurance, so he was watching on watching our uh, material from Pioneer on the internet. And he sent me an email one Sabbath afternoon after watching whatever. He says, Dwight, let me just tell you about this economy. Right now, and this is back, guys, March 08, all right? Right now, there are 45 trillion, that's, and then he wrote, that's with a T. 45 trillion unsecured dollars of credit in the United States alone. 45 trillion unsecured credit dollars. We're here, we're here in just astronomical numbers now. And for a moment, before we take a look at these three secrets to surviving the coming economic earthquake, I want to just, uh, what is a trillion? Please, can you explain this to me? Let's do it this way. If you took a stack of $1,000 bills, tight, all right? 
And by the way, the government pulled the $1,000 bills out in 1969 to avoid counterfeiting. So now everybody's going for the $20 bill. If you took a stack of $1,000 bills, put them tight, do you know how high that stack would be to equal a million? A million would be how many thousands, by the way? Thousand thousands, all right? Yeah. So let's take a look. How high would a stack, get my little pointer going here, how high would a stack be for a million dollars? Four inches high. This isn't in the study guide. If you want to jot this down, you may. Four inches high. Stack of $1,000 bills would be four inches high to equal a million. All right. Let's find out. What about, what about a billion dollars? Okay, same, th same $1,000 bills. How high would a billion dollars pile up? Four inches for a million. A billion. Okay. 300 feet high. 300 feet high for $1 billion. For a trillion dollars. Come on, bright scientists and mathematicians. How is it for a trillion dollars? 63 miles high. We're dealing, and we'll talk about this tomorrow morning when we get into the series The Temple. We're talking about the exponential here. It, just, it doesn't just keep going like this, like this. But you, you 63 trillion, and that's uh, 63 miles, rather, for just one trillion. You can't believe the numbers we're throwing around. And in the news now, we don't bat an eye. Do you bat an eye when you hear a trillion anymore? <laughs> hey, what's a trillion? It's nothing. Nothing? It's $1,000 stacked up 63 miles high. I went to the, jot this website down, usdebtclock.org. All right, usdebtclock.org. Those of you coming in, make sure you get a study guide. We haven't started filling the study guide out yet. We're just about ready to plunge in, so uh, we're just looking at some stats here to begin with. Look at this, guys, ladies and gentlemen. U.S. national debt, as of Wednesday, this might have been Tuesday, I might have corrected it by Wednesday, $11.938 trillion. That's our national debt, okay? So that's 11 times 63 miles. So we got, you know, we're up in 700 miles into the stratosphere with just a $1,000 bill stacked high. But look at this. U.S. private debt. Forget the government. This is private debt. Our debt as American citizens, $16.765 trillion. That's what we owe. We can't die till we pay it off, theoretically. All right? Now, notice this, unfunded liabilities in our nation. This would be Social Security. This would be Medicare. There you go. $105 trillion of unfunded liabilities, the United States of America. Ladies and gentlemen, the point is, we have no clue. We have absolutely zero clues as to how far we are indebted, economically speaking. And by the way, we're talking only America. This is nothing about UK. This is nothing about uh, a European Union. This is nothing about China. Nothing about Japan. Nothing about Korea. Only the United States. Unbelievable. Whom do we owe? I'll tell you what. We owe we owe uh, almost a trillion of treasury to China itself. China, Japan, and uh, what was the third country? Yeah, I don't remember. I know China and Japan. We, we've already sold the store. We owe our souls to the world now. To the place, look at this. I'm not sure if this is the quote coming up. No, this is an AP quote from August. Look at, and you heard this number right here. In a chilling forecast, the White House is predicting a 10-year federal deficit. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not the debt. The debt is already approaching 12 trillion. Maybe by the time the weekend's over, we hit 12 trillion. That's just what we owe. 
This is, this is the difference between income and outgo. Okay? So they're now predicting, this administration is predicting a 10-year federal deficit of $9 trillion, putting that to the debt of 21, I've heard up to 23 tr trillion will be, will be in hock. I mean, how do we understand it? The credit crisis. I pulled this off of a document, the largest outlay in American history. Here's what we're going through right now. Look at this. Nine major U.S. fiscal events. Louisiana Purchase, Korean War, Vietnam War, okay, uh, the Marshall Plan. Nine major U.S. fiscal events, total them all up. Here's what we spent, 3.92 trillion. World War II itself, 3.6 trillion. Now here comes the bailout for the mess we've been in since March of 08, right around the end of the Bush administration, September, October, and then the new administration. Here is the tune of the, tra of the bailout now, 12.799 trillion, trillion. We don't know these numbers anymore. It's, they're, they're just, they're, they're beyond human comprehension. In fact, you've got this quote. Uh, this is James Howard Kunstler. The number of problems we face are now hopeless. Americans will never be able, that should be America, pardon my typing. America will never be able to cover its current outstanding debt. It is humanly impossible to pay off this debt. You understand that, don't you? It cannot be paid off. It just cannot be paid off. Well, what, what's going to happen then? Who knows? We have already begun the financial meltdown. Oh, man, Dwight, you're getting me all, all uh, agitated and worried. Don't be agitated. Don't be worried. Let's start with the bad news first. Here's another one. The greatest depression in history is blowing into the G7. These are the top seven economic powers on the planet, Tyandros. Here's another one. The global recession will turn into a full-blown depression. Niku Harachchi, CEO of N1 Asset Management. May I just say this, CNBC, Market Watch, CNN, you're never going to get the full economic impact of what's going on through the established media right now. Why? Because they have to try to drum this thing back up. Wall Street desperately needs a rally. But you know what? Even if Wall Street rallies, it doesn't do a thing with the $12 trillion. It doesn't do a thing with where we're at. All right. Okay, what's this one? Three government reports. Okay, this is Martin Weiss, uh, economist, PhD. Three government reports point to fiscal doomsday. I downloaded this. I tell you what, since the Bear Stearns, March 08, I've been finding these financial sites, subscribing to them. I got a, a guy named John Maudlin who uh, puts out some good material. If you're interested in the economy, you'll find out about it. You'll find a way to find out about it. And uh, you professionals already are very concerned about uh, finances. You're probably already in touch with all this, so then this is a review for you. 20 reasons. Now, I just got this this week. Paul Farrell. And by the way, can you believe this? Market Watch, the staid CBS uh, economic uh, website, Market Watch, carried his blog. And I blogged on this, uh, and it's in my blog for this weekend. 20 reasons America has lost its soul and collapse is inevitable. Well, you're just starting to hear more and more voices of individuals who are raising the concern, are we aware as Americans of what's going down? All right? The merchants of earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. There isn't a whole lot in uh, prophecy. There isn't a whole lot about economy. You can do some extrapolating about the economy. Um, but here is a direct 
economic pinpoint. Now, it, this is Revelation 18. This is the collapse of Rome, the global alliance, political, uh, religio-political alliance. But clearly, there is an economic impact. The merchants of earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. James 5, I didn't want to put that one up. It's pretty harsh on the wealthy, and so I thought I'd leave it off. <laughs> James 5, James 5 is just a sword thrust because it, you know the point of James 5, don't you? The, 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 the wages you have held back cry out like Cain's blood from the ground. And God says that you have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. Oh, it's the kind of stuff you don't want to read in public. But I, re I was reminded of these words of Ellen White, ninth volume of Testimonies, page 13. They are not meant, there are not many. And you know what? I, when I read these words, I think of our president. I think of the brightest, brightest talent on this planet huddled around him and the other leaders of this, of this earth. And I see on their furrowed brows this just like, I don't know, we're going to try this. I think of this quotation, there are not many even among educators and statesmen who comprehend the causes that underlie the present, that underlie the present state of society. Those who hold the reins of government are not able to solve the problems. They are struggling in vain to place business operations on a more secure basis. Ladies and gentlemen, it can't be done. It's not rocket science now. It just, you can't, the numbers can't be eliminated. We're too far in debt. Now, we can keep masking, we can keep ma putting another Band-Aid and another Band-Aid and another Band-Aid, but you who are, are uh, medical pros know there comes a time when the hemorrhage is so strong that all the Band-Aids in the world cannot staunch the bloodletting and push, it bursts off and the, the victim perishes. What we're seeing today, and I am not an, I'm not an economist and I'm not a politician, but what we're seeing today the greatest minds on earth, in vain, but are desperately trying to put everything back on a secure basis. That day is gone, I believe, forever and ever. Amen. So what's going to happen, Dwight, between now and then? Hold on. Put your seatbelt on. We are in for the greatest ride in the history of this earth. Hey, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. But I am reminded that what happens to earth happens to church. We'll get to this in just a moment, but I'm going to jump ahead to it right now. Elijah predicts famine, drought, adios. And you'll never see me again, Ahab. You will not get a drop of rain until you see my face. Goodbye, and he's gone. Guess what? Even the prophet Elijah is forced to live in a world in drought and famine. Supernaturally, God sent some birds to get, keep him fed, but even the brook where the water was coming from eventually what? Dried up. The chosen, the chosen is stuck in a world under judgment. There's no pass for Seventh-day Adventist Christians. Well, you know, I'm an active member of my church, very, very supportive of the local congregation. I'm sure God will take care of me without any problem during this economic meltdown. My friend, just remember Elijah. God will take care of you. That doesn't mean keeping you afloat economically at the level you are today.
we will melt down with the world. Can't avoid it. So, thanks a lot, Dwight. I think I'm going to take that other seminar that says good news for good health, because <laughs> this one's awful. <laughs> this one's terrible. Get me out of here. No, we got the good news coming. Don't, don't get all agitated. All right, so three secrets to surviving the coming economic earthquake. Secret number one. So you'll see it there at the top of your study guide. Those of you that have come in, please get that study guide so that you have it. Shun it like the plague. By the way, if you don't, uh, you, you don't get everything, go to our website, pmchurch.tv. That's for our television ministry. But all the study guides, all the video casts, everything that's here has been on, uh, on uh, television. And I tell you what, I'm a little, feeling a little awkward. I had to get up today and say something about the seminar. I'm like, man, I'm not even the one that wanted this. But they said, hey, we heard about this series. Could you just do it here? So I don't come as an expert in economics but I do come with some very good news from the Word of God. So I want you to get to that good news now. Let's go. Proverbs 22, verse 7, TNIV, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. You'll get to that verse in a moment. It's already in your study guide. Don't bother jotting it down. But isn't that something? The borrower is a slave to the lender. We've just noted $12 trillion of indebtedness, $16 trillion of, of private debt in the United States alone. $16 trillion. That's the truth. Romans 13, verse 7, give to everyone what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay your taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And then look at this. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The King James says, owe no man anything. But you know what? I think that's a little harsh. Come on, we're living in the 21st century, third millennium. We do owe. You had to get out of, we were just chatting, uh, I met Craig over uh, getting his residency and family practice. To get out of med school, you probably had a debt or two, right? Yeah, nobody pays his way through med school or dental school or what have you. So I, I like the, the rendition here, let no debt remain outstanding. You're going to go into debt. You're going to have to go into debt. Just don't let it remain outstanding. Now, how much debt should I go into? Let's take a look at that. Um, secret number 1A, this secret number 1 will have A, B, and C. Would you jot this down, please? First part of the secret, get out of debt. But of course, just jot it down. Get out of debt. Got to. What kind of debt? What kind of debt should we get out of? All debt. Oh, come on, Dwight. What about these uh, school loans? We'll talk about those in a moment. Get out of debt. How about my credit cards, though? Oh, all debt. How about the house? All debt. How about my practice? All debt. Get out of debt. Let's just, let's just run through a few of these. Credit card debt. Have you ever seen a grown man cry? I had a kid come into my office at the Pioneer Memorial Church. His parents uh, were a physician, and uh, they made the mistake of giving him a credit card when he went off to uh, Andrews. So he had his parents' credit card. All right, son, now you're only going to use this under specials. Uh, of course, Mom and Dad, I understand that, please. He's in my office, and he's weeping, young adult. You know what? You can go online now, and uh, you can order it right there. You, there's no exchange of anything. All you have to do is give a credit card number, hit send. You have that purchase, and in uh, 48 hours, it'll be shipped to you almost overnight. Whatever it is you want, bingo, it's in your room in two days. You can't believe it. I'm talking with one of our, one of our uh, young marrieds, runs a business. 
He isn't concerned about the national economic meltdown. It doesn't bother him a hoot. He's struggling just to survive personally. $50,000 of credit card debt. I know it's nothing anymore. $50,000. You ever seen a grown man cry? What are you going to do with these credit cards? Uh, Dave Ramsey, you ever heard of him? We're running him at Pioneer, opening it up to the public. It's a great, by the way, those of you that uh, are, uh, are local church leaders, and I'm sure all of you are. Dave Ramsey, it's not an Adventist approach to stewardship, trust me. But it's a very engaging approach that can draw people off the street into your little church building on a Monday night, which we're doing right now. Monday, we've got 70 couples, 72 couples showing up. Hey, well, there's 72 couples that weren't there on a Monday night before. It's an engaging way, and he's going to talk finance. He's going to talk about God. He's not going to quote uh, Ellen White. He's not going to hit the stewardship from the angle we're going to hit it from, but that's okay. It's an open door. So Dave Ramsey, uh, in his treatment of debt, let me just run some uh, uh, material by you. He says, what we've got to do is we gotta, we've, we've got to perform a plastectomy. We just got to do a plastectomy. Get that plastic cut out of your life. Jot that down. Have a plastectomy. What's he talking about? Financial counselors are to a man and woman agreed to eliminate credit card debt is to quit using your credit cards. You've got to cut that plastic up and go by the rule cash only. Now, some of you might feel a little bit of a pinch here because we're starting to talk about where it might be affecting your life right now. My little girl. Came to me just, uh, our boy just got married um, in August, and our little girl came, and she was just in tears. She's married to a, a, a medic with the U.S. Army Rangers, uh, and they're down at uh, Fort Knox in uh, Kentucky here. And uh, those kids, bless their hearts, and they're just kids, 23 and 24, but they've gotten themselves into trouble with that uh, credit card. You know that when we talk about debt, it's a four-letter word, and all of us begin to squirm just a little. Ramsey's saying, hey, look, get, get the plastic out of your life. Now watch this. You say, here's what you say. Look at Dwight. I only use it because I pay it off every month. Good for you, but watch Ramsey on that thought. There is no positive side to a credit card use. You will spend, 12, jot this down, 12 to 18% more if you use credit cards instead of cash, even if you pay your card off every single month. Just having that card... It's just like it's just putting the foot on the gas, just and you accelerate. You're not there's no break when you're using cash, and that green stuff is coming out of your purse, out of your wallet. You're thinking about every one of those you're laying down, aren't you? I'm not thinking about it with that credit card. I mean, I can fill my car up for forty-five dollars, fill it up. Who cares? Back in my wallet. But if I were laying forty-five one-dollar bills down on that gas station deck, trust me, I'd only be putting twenty in at a time. As it is, I, know, I don't go over 30. I got this, just this thing against uh, oil companies, and I'm not ever going over 30. <laughs> huh? I'm not. That's like Yogi Berra. They came to him, they came to Yogi Berra, and they said uh, that he was at a pizza joint, and they came to him, they said, uh, Mr. Bear, we can cut your pizza in four pieces, or we can cut it in eight pieces. Which would you prefer? He said, cut it in four. I could never eat eight. All right? <laughs> all right. So filling up $20, of course, but it's a moral statement. That's all it is. All right, 12 to 18% more if you use credit cards instead of cash. If you have to use plastic, Ramsey says, come on, use a debit card. I use them for travel. By the way, we went to pick up our rental car here at uh, National at, uh, in, in Knoxville. Debit card accepted. There used to be, oh, we're not going to touch a debit card. You've got to put that on credit in case we go for everything you own. But they're not doing that now. 
I use uh, debit cards for travel and occasional convenience of ordering something over the internet or phone. Other than that, I use cash, all right? There we go. Number two, always pay more than the minimum. Look, and I'm talking to a group of professionals, so we'll hasten through this, but I've got university, 3,500 university students in my parish, so we're gonna pretend like everybody here needs a little reminder. Pay more than the minimum. You understand that credit card companies are loan sharks? You understand that, don't you? All they want, all they want is that payment. That payment is designed to keep you in their bondage forever and ever, amen. It's, it's intentionally low. You'll never pay it off. With the finance charges that the, you're racking up, please, so pay more than the minimum. Don't, don't be stuck on the minimum. Number three, pay off your credit cards beginning with the lowest balance in order to experience success as soon as possible. My son-in-law was uh, 14 months in Baghdad, came back with TBI, traumatic brain injuries, walking with a cane now, sleep apnea, and the, med uh, the military is trying to decide what to do with him. They've sent it to Fort Lewis, Washington. He may get a medical discharge, maybe medical retirement. We're not sure over the next uh, uh, 60 days. Say a prayer for Andrew if, if you could, please. But... They got a social security disability check already. And she, Chrissy called up one after she was so excited. She said, Dad, we got this, uh, s some money from social security and I've already paid off one credit card. Because I told her, start with the, with the smallest balance. Just pay it off. Because it feels good to pay off. And it gets you going, all right? Uh, reduce the interest rate. Guess what? They will, in order to keep you in their, in their uh, clutches and tentacles, to keep you in their talons, they will negotiate down the interest rate if you'll call your credit card. Don't go through a finance, don't go through a debt management company. I think that may be coming up because they'll kill you. Go directly to the credit card company and say, I want a lower rate. Otherwise, I'm going to default and you're stuck with my bill. Oh, well, yes, sir. What would, you, what would you like? They don't want to lose you. They can't afford to lose you. By the way, that's the next shoe to drop, credit card, uh, the credit card bubble. When that thing explodes, these companies are held with massive debts. Americans can't pay. So now what are you going to do? Fire us? <laughs> All right, number four, reduce the interest rate. Number five, beware the debt settlement companies. They, they are vicious. They won't return your calls. They're in to make money. They'll, they, they, they'll try to represent you. Don't, don't, go that, don't go down that road. I was listening to NPR once uh, at our university station, something, uh, what was it? Uh, somebody, somebody who heard an NPR report on these payday storefronts in many cities, tell your patients, stay away from them. Those payday storefronts will eat you alive. Okay, so I'm giving you information here that you can give to your patients because you're going to have patients, by the way, who are defaulting on their payments to you. That doesn't happen to you, though, does it? <laughs> you know. You know what the default rate is for fees, for medical fees. Same thing. You can, you can provide this counsel to people that you serve. Talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. This is a great quote from uh, James uh, Schlock, Sherlock, Skurlock. Skirlock in his book, Maxed Out. Maybe it's because of what Dave Ramsey calls the intense shame that everybody feels about debt. Watch this. The false certainty that everyone else has got it all together. I know you guys don't have debt. I'm embarrassed to even be in this seminar because everybody's thinking, I got debt. I know everybody else is here just for curiosity's sake. You feel shame over that debt. Or maybe it's what Bob, the Debtors Anonymous member I interviewed, told me. Debt is simply not a socially acceptable topic. One can talk about one's sex life or even one's drug addiction as though it were fashionable. But owning up to one's financial troubles means being ostracized from the world of polite conversation. <gasps> You're in debt? Yeah. That's a, that, that's a key point. You're going to have to be able to talk about it. 
talk to somebody. Don't suffer alone. You don't have to go to your, you don't have to go to somebody in the office. You don't have to go to somebody in the church. But talk to somebody. In fact, there's, a, there's an 800 number there. I jot this down first. It's the first step to help. Because if I don't talk about it, if I cannot articulate my need, nobody will help me meet the need. You've got to be able to articulate your need. Uh, the National Council for Consumer Credit. This is not, a, this is not a, a, a loan shark outfit. This is help. Just get on the toll-free number. You got it there in the study guide. Just call somebody. Talk to somebody. You can talk to you. You talk to somebody in the church, somebody you respect, somebody who's been around that congregation for a while, somebody who will hold confidences. Talk to that person and say, you know what? We're really feeling it right now. Could you help pray me through this? If nothing more, you have an added voice before the throne of grace on your behalf. And of course, Jesus is there, 720, uh, Hebrews 7.25, he's there 24-7. He ever lives to make intercession for us. You talk to God, but sometimes you need to talk to a human. Don't be too embarrassed to say, we got a debt problem going on. Oh, let's not talk, spend a whole lot of time about student loan debt, so I'm going to fly through this. Um, but that is a kind of debt, and those of you that have been through med school have that debt. Uh, don't pay more than you have to for college. Now, this is just for college students, but let me just run this by you. Don't pay more than you have to for college. The, the, the Adventist Review ran a piece this last uh, March or April on debt, and they interviewed a student from med school. Her name was Sue, and she left med school with 300,000 debt, which I, probably is not a huge amount. Is that huge? Yes. That is huge? Okay. So she left med school with a three... <laughs> sorry for not knowing. She left med school with the equivalent of a house to pay off for her education. And she talked about how now she's going to live without this and this and this and this until she can somehow confront that debt. But if you're going into school and some of you are thinking about changing your career, doing a little bit of career shifting, listen, don't, don't pay more than you have to. Don't go plunging in just for the sake of getting another degree. Come on. Be careful. Don't pay more than you have to for college. No, no, number two, of course, live within your means. You knew that, but I'll give you a chance to just scribble that down so you can pass it on to your patients. Live within your means. Number three, prioritize your debt. What's that mean? Well, take the lowest interest rates. Now we're not going to do the credit card thing and paying the little one off. The student debt is actually your cheapest debt. Your rates should be the lowest for your student loans. So put, those can hold a little bit. Get rid of those loan sharky debts that are consuming you. Get rid of those credit cards as fast as you can. The student debt, you'll come to. The government wants to hang on to you, and so they, they can work with you. But get rid of, the, uh, get rid of the, the high finance charge debt. And please, avoid impulse purchases. Save before you buy. And it's interesting, we talked about young uh, med students coming out, of, coming out of med school thinking, you know, I have an image now. I've got to drive like I'm a doctor. I've got to live in what is like a doctor. And so they're incurring massive amounts of added debt beyond student loans just for the sake of making a statement to the community where they're going, where they're headed to. Forget it. Forget the statement. You are who you are. You're just out of school and you have massive debts and you're going to concentrate on those debts, thank you, before you start pursuing other needs. 
avoid impulse purchases, save before you buy. This little counts, bit of counsel I thought was very effective. If you're in a low crunch time now and you have to have something and it's going to take time payments to have it, spend a few months pulling that equivalent of the time payment out and see how you live. You put that in savings, but see how you live without that time payment in your budget. If you can make a few months, hey, you know, this really isn't too bad, you might be able to take on that time payment because you can live without $311 a month. You've already figured out for three months we're doing okay without $311 a month. That was good counsel. Avoid impulse purchases. Number five, use your credit card wisely. It's not a tool to buy things you can't afford. Boy, that's good. Yeah, just forget it. It's not, well, we, we, we can't pay for this. Well, let's use a credit card. Nah. Okay, now we write the text down that we began with, and you fill in the words. The borrower is slave to the lender. That's Proverbs 22.7. The wise man knew what he was talking about, didn't he? The borrower is slave to the lender, and then jot down Romans 13.8. Let no debt remain outstanding. All right. Uh, secret number one, A, get out of debt. Secret number one, B, stay out of debt. Now, this one I hope will be helpful for where you are right now. The best way to stay out of debt, jot this down, is to quit looking at the ads. I'm telling you, those ads are masterfully designed by psychologists to get you to want what you don't need. That's what's going on. I, I, uh, Jerry, uh, what's, his, what's his last name? Mandler. Is that it? No, Mander. Jerry Mander, top, one of the top agencies, ad agencies, San Francisco, wrote a book, Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. By the way, I, it might be on Amazon.com if it's still in print. You ought to read the book, Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. But he's talking about how television works. Advertising exists, particularly on TV, only to purvey what people don't need. Come on. Do I have to see an ad to tell me, oh, I should be eating bread today? Do I have to see an ad? Oh, I should brush my teeth. I, know, I forgot all about that. Thank you. Television. I didn't know I needed to brush my teeth. What you need, you don't need marketing for. You, are, you will go and do it. Isn't that right? It's what you don't need that you need marketing for. Because you won't go and do it unless somebody gets you to think you need it. Turn your want into a need. When it, whatever people do need, they will find without advertising. The goal of advertising is discontent, or to put it another way, an internal scarcity of contentment. I like that. Well, you know, you got to be careful at Andrews University because you have every discipline sitting out there in the congregation. And I got, when I flipped this up this spring, uh, one of our marketing professors, I mean, the guy's PhD is in marketing. He said, thanks a lot, Dwight. You know, you, you, made, you, you made marketing look like it's some kind of evil force among us. <laughs> well, I said, it is, isn't it? <laughs> I said, come on, Bruce, please. What does marketing do? Well, it, it's true. It defines products and it, it you know, identifies a product. I always wanted to drive that car, so now you know that that car exists. I suppose there's a certain element of that, but I'm much more cynical, ladies and gentlemen. The ads are intended to make me need what I never needed before. Need what I never needed before. All right, that's from that's a great book, Four Arguments for the Elim Elimination of Television. What's the, what's, what's the antidote? Oh, I love this. Philippians 4, verse 11, that old warrior, preacher, the Apostle Paul, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned, let's read this out loud together. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now watch this. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have 
Plenty. I've been, hey, I've, I've lived on both sides of the fence. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. For my God, oh, I love this. Circle this in your Bible. My God will meet all your needs. And by the way, what's the word there? Needs. Now your wants. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. Isn't that an amen, hallelujah promise? Amen. God is going to take care of you and me. Paul says, look it, I have learned the secret of being content. He was not a Zen Buddhist. He was a Christian. But I've learned in my walk with Christ that I can be content with what I have. If I have little, I'm still content. If I have much, I'm still content. Wherever, whatever state I'm in, and he, that doesn't mean West Virginia or Kentucky or Michigan. Whatever state financially I'm in, I've learned to be content. All right? Contentment is a quiet state of mind based upon a simple way of life. When you come and visit Karen and me, we'd love to have you. So come on up to, uh, by the way, to fall as much more glorious for some reason up north than it is down here. The, you don't get the yellows down here as much. But uh, anyway, come on up and visit us. But when you come to visit us, isn't this right, love? Do not ask to see our garage. <laughs> I beg of you, please. Somehow, uh, apparently it is true that the storage space in your home is inversely proportional to the length of time in your house. Because, I mean, it's a mess. What are we, some kind of pack rat or something? It's an embarrassment to the human race. <laughs> why do we have to have all this? And why is it in the garage if we have to have it? <laughs> do you know? I mean, I don't know. What's up with that? Contentment is a quiet state of mind based upon a simple way of life. My God will supply all your needs. When you reduce your wants, then you're content to trust God with your needs. Just reduce your wants. Trust Him with your needs. Reduce your wants. Trust Him with your needs. You'll be fine. You'll make it. You'll make it. All right. And this is finally the letter C for secret number one, live out of debt. So the first one, uh, this one, uh, this is live out of debt. Yeah. And I'll tell you what this one means. That, that threw you, but that's supposed to throw you. All right. Live out of debt. That means live out of a sense of indebtedness. One, one uh, theologian, P.T. Forsyth, turn of the uh, 19th to 20th century, great English writer. Forsyth made the point, the dominant emotion in the New Testament is a sense of indebtedness. That's the dominant emotion in the New Testament, a sense of indebtedness. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in massive debt to the God of this universe. That's the point. Look at this. Don't you just love this desire of ages? The whole treasury, Phil this in, the whole treasury of heaven is open to those God seeks to save, having collected the riches. Oh, I just love this. Having collected the riches of the universe and laid open the resources of infinite power, he gives them all into the hands of Christ, and he says, Jesus, all these are for the human race. Use these gifts to convince man and woman that there is no greater love than mine in heaven or earth. His meaning our greatest happiness will be found in loving God. The entire treasury of heaven has been emptied for the human race. What do you say to that? Amen. I mean, is this an amen conference or what? <laughs> huh? Amen. amen. The whole treasury of heaven, ladies and gentlemen, there it is. 
when you realize that God has emptied his treasury to save you and me, I tell you what, uh, that will reduce our wants faster than anything else. What do, I, what do I need? I have everything. I have everything. I have everything I need. And it's wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have the whole treasury of heaven. Hallelujah. So there it is. Secret number one. Take a breath. Secret number two. Secret number two. Go over the head of Warren Buffett. There's that website again. Go over the head of Warren Buffett. You know who this man is? You surely do. Yeah, that, that's our man. That's our man, Warren Buffett. Uh, Forbes magazine ran a piece on him the other day. Let me just tell you a little bit about Warren Buffett. Age, 77. You're looking at a man right there, 77. Uh, source, Berkshire Hathaway. You know that that's his big uh, investment uh, house in uh, Omaha. Country of citizenship, United States, residence Omaha, industry investments, marital status, widowed, remarried, three children, education, University of Nebraska, Lincoln, Bachelor of Arts, Columbia University, Master of Science. America's most beloved investor is now the world's richest man, sword past friend and bridge partner Bill Gates, as shares of Berkshire Hathaway climbed 25% since the middle of last July. Son of Nebraska politician, delivered newspapers as a boy, filed first tax return at age 13, claiming $35 deduction for his bicycle. Pretty good. So the kid just had it. He just had it from the get-go. He knew what to do with money. Present worth, $62 billion. Present worth. Now, how high was a stack of a billion dollars? What was it? 300 feet. So 62 times 300 feet. That's how many thousand-dollar bills he owns. That's how much he's worth. $62 billion. So let's just say... Warren Buffett somehow found out you were at the Amen Conference in Gatlinburg, and he just he said, listen, give me the list of phone numbers from those people at that Amen Conference. He picks your phone number, calls you up this next week. He says, hey, listen, I'm Warren Buffett. I know we haven't met. I, I know a kid that uh, actually talked to him on the phone, was working in uh, finances in Los Angeles. He's Jeff Smith. He's at Andrews University now, working at WAUS. He talked with Mr. Hathaway. He said he's quite a crusty old guy. Uh, and this kid was working for a, a partner of his. So let's just say you, you got Warren Buffett on the phone. He said, hey, listen, I got these phone numbers. I'm pretty impressed with you. Just by your name, I can tell you're somebody special. He said, listen, I got $62 billion I'm worth. I'm wondering if it would be all right with you if I take my $62 billion and I put it up as a surety in case anything ever happens to you. Would you be amenable to my taking my $62 billion and putting it up as a surety in case you ever get in need? Now, ladies and gentlemen, I may not be the, the, uh, the, the, the most colorful crayon in the box, but I'm going to tell you something. My counsel would be very simple to you. If Warren Buffett ever calls you with that offer, just say yes. <laughs> Mr. Buffett, I was kind of thinking about you today. In fact, we were talking about you on Friday. Coincidence. And you called me. Wow. Yes, please. Please put all your $62 billion as a surety in case I ever run into need. I need big money behind me. Now, you got the point, don't you? You got the point. That's the point. That's the point. Let me just do a little Bible story here to remind you what that point is. J Jacob left Beersheba and he set out for Haran. Oh, he's in a heap of trouble. The guy is running. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Oh, boy. 
And guess what happened? Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a staircase resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it, at the top of this ladder, stood the Lord Almighty himself and he said, God, to the sleeping cheat. By the way, do you, know, do you understand that Jacob was a cheat? Did you also know, by the way, he was a liar? Did you also know he was a deceiver? He was all of those, plus any other adjectives you can come up with. The Lord God Almighty stands at the top of that ladder and he says, Jake, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants a land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And guess what, Jake? I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Amen. You know what you call that? It's called mercy. It's what Louis was preaching about this morning. It's called grace. You can be a cheat, you can be a liar, you can be a supplanter, you can be a deceiver. Current, not past, currently. He's running. He's going to be a liar for a long time to follow, by the way. You can be all of the above. And God says, I can do business with you. I can do business with you. I'm going to bless you and give you this whole land when I bring you back. Ladies and gentlemen, that's called grace, it's called mercy. Have mercy. It's exactly what God did on Jacob. Jacob wakes up from that dream and he says, Wow, surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. He was afraid. Oh, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it and he called that place Bethel. Beth house El God. House of God. Though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow. Now watch this. Saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I may return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you, dear God, give me I will give you, I'll give you a tenth. Let's shake. It feels, it feels like it's a little bit of quid pro quo going on here. You know, this for that. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. It's not that. Jacob is out of absolute awe that God is doing business with him. He, says, I'm he has to say if you give me something because there's nothing to tithe. He's zero. He's nothing. If you give me something, I'll give it back to you. I will give it back to you. It's an amazing, amazing story. Apparently, and here's a point I want you to catch, please. It's okay to allow an economic crisis to forge a new compact between you and God. Some of you are going through an economic challenge right now. And what this teaching that we're about to examine is going to kind of get close to your mind and your heart. It's okay. This is good news right off at the, right at the beginning. And apparently, it's okay to allow an economic crisis to forge a new compact between you and God. Some people say, you know, we should, I should, we should be really altruistic with God. We should only come to God when we truly love Him and are, are happy to be with Him. Do you, know how, do you know how often we'd be away from God if we did that? No, we are very human. Tell you what, God, you get me out of this mess. Boy, I was so moved by Dr. Kim's uh, story today, wasn't that something, that testimony? Mercy. And that's what happened to him. It's mercy. 
But a lot of times, it's in that clutch that we are now wheeling and dealing. You get me out of this. I'll be yours forever and ever. Just get me out. Save my marriage. Bring my children home. Make this practice work. And we'll be together. We'll be buds. Apparently, it's okay to even do that. Apparently, a crisis is not a bad time to forge a compact. In fact, every crisis, you think about it, is a call for renewed compact with God. Every crisis is a call for renewed compact with God. I tell you what, the only thing worse than turning to God in a crisis is not turning to God in a crisis. That's the only thing worse. So crisis is in your life right now? Turn to Him like you never have before. Intensify. Intensify your relationship with Jesus. Crises are God's way of saying, hey, yo. Uh, C.S. Lewis used to put it this way. He said, you know, in prosperity, God whispers. In pain, God uses a megaphone. God doesn't ever cause the crisis. Let's be very clear about Lucifer's role in all of this mess we're in. But God, through crisis, is right there saying, come, I'm calling you, you and me. Every crisis is a call to renewed compact with God. Just as it was with Jacob in the midst of a crisis, God draws especially near to us. So if you're going through a crisis right now in your life, and by the way, this doesn't have to be economic. It can be marital. It can be social. It can be physical. You know what? People leave your office. People leave your office. And sometimes it's a meltdown, as you well know. You go home that night feeling great. But you know, somebody went home to his wife today with the bad news. He's in a physical meltdown. Yeah. Whatever the crisis, some of us are going through a crisis right now. The good news is in the midst of it, God draws especially near to us. Hallelujah. So what did Jacob do? He made a vow. He said, okay, God, you be with me. You watch over me. Take care of me. I need food. I need food and clothes. I got to get back safely. This, tone, this little stone here, that's a, that's a sign that we made a covenant, you and I. And of all that you give me, of all that you give me, I will return a tenth to you. As a recognition of God as his Savior and sustainer, Jacob offers back to God one-tenth of his income. Okay, God, you're my Savior. You are my sustainer. Look at this. Jacob didn't invent, by the way, Jacob did not invent tithing. He heard about it from, his, uh, from Grandpa Abraham. You, you remember Abraham. The Bible calls it tithe. You already knew that. You remember Abraham, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God, most high. And he blessed Abram. And he said, Blessed be Abram by God, most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God, most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything that he had. Abraham is the first recorded instance of tithe. It wasn't a barter between Jacob and God, although that really wasn't a barter. Jacob was just out of overwhelming gratitude. But, but for Abraham, it was an act of worship. He's having a communion service right here. He's worshiping the Most High God. He says, hey, by the way, take a tenth. Abraham returned tithe as a grateful act of worship before God, whereas Jacob gave it as a grateful act of partnership with God. Stay with me, God. Stay with me. Get me through this life. You get a tenth of everything all along the way. What's wrong with that? Abraham just said, God, you've been so good to me. Take it. Jacob says, I need you all the way. Stay with me. Two, two very different motivations. But God, God honors them both. 
They're both acceptable names. God says, fine, let's do it. And that's what the wisest man on earth, sorry Warren Buffett, not you, but Solomon, wisest and richest man on earth, said, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. That's what Abraham was doing. I'm just, hey, you can have a tenth of this. Now here's Jacob, verse 10. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim with new wine. I need you to do that for me, God. So you have, you have the response of gratitude for divine blessings. That's Abraham. That's Proverbs 3.9. But the very next verse, Proverbs 3.10, describes the human request in gratitude for more divine blessings. That's Jacob. So there's nothing wrong when you return your tithe in that little tithe envelope in that church where you worship. There's nothing wrong with you saying, God, you've been so good to me. And you throw that, you, you drop that in the, uh, the little offering basket as it comes by, as the deacons are passing you, you drop it in. There's nothing wrong with you saying, God, God, stay with me. Stay with me. I'm going to need you. We got some rough seas ahead. I really need you to be my sustainer. It's okay. God, God accepts both. Proverbs 3.9 is for Abraham. Proverbs 3.10 for Jacob. So let's take, let, let's take a look at this, this, this <clears throat> almost unbelievable, unfathomable promise that God makes. Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? This always makes you feel bad, doesn't it? I said, Come on, God, can't you use a little more, uh, just a, what, what's the word I want, uh, a little softer language? I mean, rob, please. You know, do, you know, do you know what it means to rob? What does it mean to rob? Oh, man. I saw this piece. I saw this in the newspaper. Where was this? I got it here somewhere. Oh, man. Can you believe this? This is true. This is a true story. This is down in uh, just north of Miami. Listen to this. North of Miami. Oh, Palm Beach woman. So she, her, her house had been robbed. So she said, I'm going to take care of this. She put a little webcam up in the corner of her house so that when she went to work, she could log on and she could watch what's happening in her house. So this way, nothing will ever get by me again. I'll never come home and find out that my house has been robbed. One day, true story, just a few months ago, she's looking on her, she's taking a little break at work at her computer. She's looking at her living room. There goes a guy. There goes another guy. Two men. Two men in her house. She's looking at this thing. She said, that can't be. Then they go by again. They go into the kitchen, open the refrigerator, and her watchdog is standing right there, wagging his tail. <laughs> she sees the whole thing. She calls 911. She says, you're not going to believe this. They're robbing my house. I'm watching them. How do you know, ma'am? I'm watching them. She calls back. 911 comes in. They surround the house. When these two guys come out, man, all these squad cars are waiting for them. What happens when you rob? You take something that does not belong to you. That's what it means. God isn't being real fancy here. When he says, you've robbed me, he means you've taken something that belongs to me. You thought it was yours. Like those two guys walking through the house, you thought that was all yours. Five-finger discount, here, here, here. No, that's mine. Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? What are you talking about, God? But you ask, how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? Ah, we all know this. Grew up with it. Listen, he says in tithes and, in tithes and offerings, let, let's just find out how much God really owns. 
Jot these down. Keep your, this will get your wrist uh, going here. Let's just fly through these. Uh, Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. What does God say? The silver is mine and the gold is mine. Bingo. If there's silver in this world, it's mine. If there's gold in this world, it's mine. All currency is mine. Whoa. Uh, Psalm 50, verse 10. For the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Incidentally, from the last reports we've gotten, the hills under the cattle are also his. <laughs> the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Look at this one, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's, everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. It's all, it's all, all mine. Unbelievable. And yet, and yet God says, guess what? You can have it. Oh, Maltby Babcock got it right, didn't he? This is my father's world. It really is. It is his from stem to stern. This is my father's world. He's got the whole world in his hands. There, there, there is something in our independent human spirit that says, you know what, I'm I really not really keen on this because, look, it's just like God is holding me hostage. He owns everything. I got nothing. What's the problem with this? I don't like this arrangement. No, 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 no. This was not new with you and me. This, is, this has been this way from the beginning. Look, at when he, when he made Adam and Eve, Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and woman, put them in the garden to work it and to take care of it. It's the TNIV. This is take care. It's mine. You manage it. Do some of your practices have business managers? Hmm? Karen works for a family practice. She's worked for this family practice for, uh, for uh, 17 years. They're twins, Lauren and Lowell Hamill. Both went to family practice, specialized in that, and uh, great docs. But they have to hire a manager. And the manager does nothing but manage the practice. Now, the manager is never confused, thinking, man, I'm really doing well. The manager, there's just no confusion. The manager knows everything in this, everything here on these books belongs to the uh, practice. I'm just managing it. But guess what? People love to manage. What's wrong with managing? There's nothing wrong with it at all. When you find out that God owns the whole thing, that's the best job in the world now because it's the only one left. <laughs> he owns everything. There's nothing we own. Dwight, I own my house. You do? Be honest. Do you really? No. That, that's the point. When you take care of someone else's property, you aren't an owner. You're not a robber either. You're a steward or a manager. What's wrong with being a steward or a manager? It's an old word, steward. So we use the word today, manager. It's a, it's a professional position. You can get paid very good bucks to be a manager. It's a high honor. Listen, when you were a kid growing up, hey, look, when you were a kid growing up, how much did you own? Tell me the truth. How much did you own? Zero, nada, nothing. But you know what? That was good news because you never had to worry about how the family finances would end up because your dad was the guy that had to worry about it. Wasn't that, isn't that why he was being paid to be dad? <laughs> You're the kid. He owns everything. Didn't your dad own everything? Mine did. I have no worry. Did, tell me, did you ever develop an ulcer as an eight-year-old? <laughs> Did you ever worry? Did you ever, did you ever develop tachycardia because you're struggling with the great issues of life as a nine-year-old? Why didn't you worry? Because my dad, my dad is doing it all. That's the point. That's the point. We're just, we're just, uh, yeah, we're just little kids. We're stewards, managers. God designed, God designed the tithe to be a sign of our compact with him. He's our CFO. What's CFO stand for? Chief Financial Officer. He's the CFO. By the way, he's also the CEO. 
He's our CFO, and we are his administrative assistants. That's all we are. Nothing wrong with being an administrative assistant. It's the best job around. We are his administrative assistants. God says, hey, can I be the CFO? What's it mean to me? Make God our CFO? Here's, here's what it means. When we return his one-tenth, okay, that's that number there, one-tenth. When we return his one-tenth back to him, we recognize his ten-tenth ownership of us and his 100% partnership with us. Remember uh, uh, Warren Buffett? $62 billion, he says, I'm going to put that behind you. You will have $62 billion as your security. Ever get in need? Just call on me, because i got $62 billion where this dollar came from. $62 more billion of these. What's to worry? God is saying, I am 100% partnered with you, my man, my woman. Stay with me. Let me run your life. Let me run your life. Give me your finances. Give me your practice. Give me everything you have. I promise you. It's the best partner you've ever had. Ah, here, here's the little formula, by the way. God's ownership plus my stewardship is our partnership. That's it. Piece of cake. God's ownership plus my stewardship is our partnership. He, guess who's carrying the heavy weight in this one? Warren Buffett. The divine Warren Buffett. So how's it go? Look at this promise. Isn't this something? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now test me. Come on, check me out. Because I'm into rational thinking. I know skeptics. You go ahead and test me. Put me on the line. Test me in this way, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates. I like this. The floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I'm going to fill you to the max. And you check me out. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't mean, ladies and gentlemen, that I'm going I'm to make you as, as rich as Warren Buffett. Because we don't need to be as rich as Warren Buffett. Who needs, to be, who needs that? Do you need $62 billion worth of headache? Huh? I know what you're saying. Try me. Just try me, God. Try me, please. We could, if I don't like it, I'll let you know. No. Wow. I'm even better than Warren Buffett. I'm going to put the entire bank of heaven behind you. I'm the CFO. Tell you what, you may never be as rich as Warren Buffett, but here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to treat you like I treated my, my children going through the wilderness. Look at this, Deuteronomy 29, verse 5. During those 40 years, guess what, kids? Your clothes did not wear out, nor did your sandals. Now, I know you only had one wardrobe, but that's okay. It never wore out. I got used to seeing those same old stripes. I got used to those sandals. You can get used to those sandals. I'll keep the sandals moving. I'll keep the sandals with, I'll keep the tires treaded for you. Now look, folks, I understand. I mean, look at, this is 2000, what is this, 2009? We're a very intelligent bunch, very savvy to life on this planet. I understand that. But we got to quit, we got to quit factoring out the divine miracle of the CFO. You can't measure it. You won't be able to get up in church. Hey, hey guys, you know what? I was looking at my tires this week. Whoa, do you know they're 50,000 mile tires? Guess how many miles I have on them? 70,000 and all the church rises and said, whoa, you must be a tither. How do you explain that? Well, you know what? I've tithed. I had some crazy tires once. It made me so mad they went out at 30,000. I don't know what's up with that. I would go to God and say, what's the problem? You were 20,000 short on the warranty? I just say, hey, I'll go with it. Do you know what God? Do you know what God did for me once? When we were when we were in, in ministry out in Oregon, 
we would have those months where there was more month than money when you got to the end of the month. <laughs> and we were looking at one of those months, and I was saying, man, and there's this check outstanding, but it, has, it, hasn't, been, it hasn't come in, so I can't, you know, I can't justify it here. It's, it's, it's still outstanding. I said, oh, it's to a dry cleaner. So I went down to this dry cleaner because this check had been out. I went down to this dry cleaner, but if the check comes in, I go under. So we're okay because the check's out. So I go into the dry cleaner. I say, hey, listen, what's the problem? I, I, can't, I wrote a check to you, got a suit dry clean to preach in, and uh, still out. He says, what's the date on the check? So I looked out and gave him the date. Oh, I know what happened. He said, you know what? That night, our store was robbed, everything taken. Cash register. Oh, I said, oh, that's terrible. Let me write out another. No, you don't have to write out a check. He said, Insurance is covered at all. I said, God, how did you do that? He doesn't rob dry cleaners for us. That's the point I'm making. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. But he takes care of us. They're little intangible ways. That's what he's trying to tell Israel. Guys, your clothes never wore out. Your sandals. I'll take care of you. I'm your CFO. Trust me. All right. Uh, this is Psalm 37, 25. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Boy, I tell you what, hang on to that. Young parents especially, hang on to that. Old parents hang on to it too because you're worried about your kids. You know what? Once you're a parent, you're stuck. You're going to be a parent for the rest of your life. In case you and you know what? Your kids get married. You say, well, now they're gone. They're on their own. I tell you what, kids can be on their own. They're still just as much in your heart as before they're on their own. Come on, you're worried about every little bit that you hear. You're just sick. Come on. God says, look, David says, hey, guys, I'm, I'm kind of old now, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen their children begging bread. God will take care of you. Make him your CFO. He'll take care of you. He'll take care of your children. By the way, the children are depending on you being really, really tight with God. If you're not tight with God, you're not only letting you down, you're letting your children down. They're depending on you to be tight with God so that God can be tight with your family finances and your practice finances. If you're tight with God, you're taking care of your children. It's the biggest gift you can give your children is being tight with God. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me. Come on, see if I'll not throw open the floodgates. Wow. And pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. There it is. Secret number three. That should be number two. What's it saying yours? Go over the head. Would you jot this down, please? Go over the head of Warren Buffett and enlist God as your CFO by returning his one-tenth to him. Fill that in, please. That's the secret right there. You're saying, Pastor, wait a minute. I'm, I'm already so deep in debt. I can't, re I can't afford to return to God as tithes and offerings right now. Give me, give, me, give me a little breather, will you? I'll get on this in six months. My friend, you cannot afford to not take God on immediately. If you've been kind of, you know, just kind of putting it off for that rainy day, the rainy day's here. I tell you what, wherever, whatever your financial status is right now, you can afford to give. The issue is not can I afford to give. Here's the issue. Can I trust God to fulfill His promise? That's the issue. It's not can you afford to give. You can afford to give. <laughs> you give out of the little you have, but you go ahead and give. The question is, can I trust God to fulfill His promise and give back to me? Can I trust Him? Mm. God will take care of you. I love that song. Listen to this. Uh, Ed Gunger, giving. Say, so what's happening with giving? God's doing something supernatural in our lives when we give. Look at this. Giving touches a nerve in us that nothing else does. We look a lot like God when we do it. For God so loved the world that He gave. 
John 3, 16. So that's, that's why God says, I need you to give. I know you don't have much. Don't worry about it. I'm not, I'm not impressed with the amount. Please, just do it. You're like me when you do it. When you give, you defy the fear that you won't have enough. That's good. You defy the fear. I dare you fear to freeze me, paralyze me. I'm giving anyway. How could you do that, honey? How could you do that? Didn't you know the situation with, our, with the bank account? Trust God. Amen. Just trust Him. You insult greed. Oh, I love that. You insult greed, the impulse to acquire or possess more than one needs or deserves. If you really believe that God owns it all and, and that He is your source and provider. If I ask that question, okay, how many believe that God owns it all and He's your source and provider? Every hand in this room goes up. Every hand goes up. If you really believe it, now notice how the sentence goes. Giving will be a simple matter. You just got to do it. <laughs> you just got to give. It'll be a simple matter. The arena of giving is the only place where exactly what's going on in your heart is revealed. Isn't that something? That's the only way for somebody outside of you to tell what's happening inside of you. Does she give? Because if you don't give, something's going on inside. Something's hanging on that will not let go. There's an issue. You guys are skilled, many of you, at being able to look at a very normal exterior and through, through, through diagnostic testing determine what's happening what, where, where no one else can see. You can tell the inside. Giving is an x-ray straight into your heart. When you don't give the x-ray to the one who sees is, we're not there yet. We are not there yet. One more line from, uh, from uh, what happened there? Oh. One more line. According to Jesus, giving keeps your, I like this, keeps your heart in motion toward God and away from material things. Your heart will follow the direction of your giving. Isn't that good? Your heart will follow. You give to Amen. You give to this organization. You shut down your office for two weeks and you go down to Honduras. Man, God, how are we going to do this? Can't shut down the office for two weeks and give of my time in mission service. By the way, this is not just financial giving. This is giving on every level. You can't do this. You can't. Yes, you can shut the practice down. Shut it down. Go. I'll, I'll take care of you. I'm the CFO, remember? You do this for me, I'll do this for you. I'll open the floodgates. I'll open them for you. Okay, three simple little rules then. Where is my computer? There it is. Oh, my battery's out. All right. Well, isn't this something? <laughs> I love it when it happens. Come on, it's not even, it's, it's, it's not even uh, changing here. What would do that? Do I get the devil mad by saying something? <laughs> huh? What's up with that? Let me see if the, uh, does the, the laser work? Yeah, it can't be the battery. Don't worry about it, folks. Would, would, it, would a laptop freeze and it's still working? Gets hot? Really? Man, I've used this for... Watch this. 
No, I just pulled out. That, nothing's supposed to happen there, but. All right. That was a great quote, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Looks like that's going to be our concluding quote today. Very nice to have all of you. Come again. All right, let me keep going here. We'll figure out something because we're, we're about ready to shift gears, and I don't want you to miss uh, secret number three. So keep going. Uh, what's the last thing we had up there? Okay, we got Gunger up there. Yeah, yeah. Three steps. Okay, let me give you those three steps. God says try me. Okay, try me, try me, try me. All right. Step number one. Jot this down, please. Step number one. Always set aside God's one-tenth whenever you receive money. The moment you get it, just set it aside. Get yourself in that practice. Set it aside. One-tenth. Boom. Government sends a check. One-tenth. Grandma sends a check. One-tenth. Uh, my investments send a check. Well, if they send a check to you, one-tenth. If it's just rolling over, I mean, I understand how that works. Sort of. Not. But uh, when, you, when the money comes to you, one-tenth. All right? Number two, incrementally work up to another one-tenth for God as He blesses you. Work your way up to another tenth. He's saying, Dwight, the tithe is only 10%. Don't ask me to keep doing more. No, no, no. But tithes and offerings. He said, you robbed me in tithes and offerings. So add it. Just do, do the, do, go the extra mile. Work yourself up to another tenth. Most of you are probably already doing that anyway. Incrementally work up to another one-tenth. And finally, number three, let every gift you give be the compact between you and God to live ten-tenths for the other. God says, I'll live ten-tenths for you, boy, if you live ten-tenths for me. And by the way, he doesn't say if. He says, I'll live 10 tenths for you, whether you live 10 tenths for me or not. The deal is, would you give 10 tenths back to me? Just give me your 10 tenths. One tenth, one tenth, 10 tenths. Those are the three rules. One tenth, one tenth, 10 tenths. I give 10 tenths to you, you give 10 tenths to me. Once upon a time, there was a little widow who came to church. She had nothing. I mean, zero, not a nothing. Well, she had something. So she reached into her purse. It was embarrassing. So, so when, the, when the offering plate came by, you know how sometimes you tuck your offering because you're embarrassed, you didn't bring much? So you, you tuck your offering under your hand, just like that. So when it goes by, and nobody sees it. She did that. She tucked her little penny. She tucked it right like this. And then when it went, when it went by, she just went down like this and just let her thumb go. And it went by. But somebody was standing in the church and happened to see it. And in a stage whisper that everybody could hear, he said, did you see how much that widow just gave? What? This church, shh. Did you see? She gave more than everybody else in church today. What? Yeah. For they gave out of their abundance, but she gave everything she had. And that little widow went home 10 feet in the air, cloud nine, because the God of the universe had recognized what she did. She gave everything. Can you go back now to that one? Bless you. <laughs> Perfect. With God... Write it down. It's not what you give that counts. It's what you have left over that matters. That's the key for this Amen conference and for the Adventist church at this critical hour in history. It's not what you give that counts. It's what you have left over that matters. Because the wealthy were given that day, but the only one that got recognized by the Creator was the little lady who slipped her penny under her thumb so that nobody could see it was the last penny she owned. And she gave the most. Isn't that something? <laughs> Jesus, He always has a way of going straight to the heart, doesn't He? Amen. Give it all. Give it all. Bless you. There's a special place for you in the kingdom. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you very much. Because here it is, guys. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, isn't this something? Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You can't outgive the giver. You cannot. God will take care of you. Trust me. What are you going through right now? Don't worry about it. God will take care of you. And secret number three is going to open for you now a door of infinite adventure with the kingdom. Let's go to secret number three and not even take a break. Secret, three secrets to surviving the coming economic earthquake. Number three, jot it down. Turning your surviving into thriving. That's the title of this secret, but it means more than that as we're going to find out. Let's go. Once upon a time, Jesus said, there was a man. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. The man is sitting that night at his little desk, high-intensity lamp there in the farmhouse. I mean, it has been one of those unbelievable days. Do you know what? He had, he had his big combine, but he had to rent every Penske, Penske truck he could get his hands on to drive up beside the combine so that they could collect. This was a bumper, bumper, bumper crop. All day long, these rental trucks are coming. All day long, they're driving by. Finally, at the end of the day, the yard, he owes Penske big time, but the yard is filled with these trucks. The field has been mowed. The grain is in. And as he's sitting at his trusty little Radio Shack calculator, because farmers use those, and punching the numbers in, he said, I can't believe this. He did it again. It turns out he has more cubic footage of golden grain than he has silo footage. And he says, I can't believe this. And he does the numbers four times to make sure. And when he pushes away that night, because his wife has already gone to bed, when he pushes away that night, he's thinking to himself, I can't, what am I going to do? I have no place. I'm out of silos. <laughs> I'm going to have to build, I'm going to have to tear down my barns. I'm going to have to build some big ones. Then I'm going to store my surplus grain. And then I'm going to say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And he crawled in beside his slumbering wife and he pulled the sheet up around his chin and he, sub he didn't know why, but he just kind of broke into it. He began to hum the words, If I was a rich man. La -da 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 -da. And he lulls himself to sleep. Sound asleep snoring when the limp curtains beside his open window that have allowed in that sliver of silver from the full moon to fall across his slumbering countenance, those limp curtains suddenly stiffen and then begin to move. There's no breeze, but they move. And suddenly, as if a presence has entered his room, in the dark a voice speaks. And God said to him, this is the only place in the Bible God calls anybody a fool. You fool! This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And the voice disappears. And like in a dream, the man sits up, clutches his chest, and before he can awaken her, he's dead. What an awful parable 
to tell the human race. But Jesus told it. And then he gives the punchline. This is how it will be for those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. You know, the one thing that Jesus told more stories about than any other thing? Money. He must have known us like a book. Money. Now, interestingly enough, Luke has already given the punchline before the parable. Because it begins, it begins this way. First jot this down. I'll take you to the beginning of the, that chapter. Whatever it means, okay? So we don't know yet what it means. But it's surely this idea of being rich toward God, because Jesus says if you're not rich toward God, this idea of being rich toward God must be utterly essential to life, to living life on the maximum level. Whatever it means. Because if you're not, all that you have and all that you are will die with you. That was the point of Jesus' parable. It's all gone. It's over. Now what are you going to do with it? Let's go back to the beginning. Someone in the crowd says, Hey, Lord, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Hey, watch out, guys. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Would you jot that line down, please? Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. There's something apparently exponentially more important than the accumulation of possessions. Actually, we, we, we should already know the answer to that because Dr. Luke, we, we plunge right into the middle of Luke. He's already given the secret. And if you were reading consecutively through his gospel, we would have already gotten it in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's go read it. It's just one, uh, one line. Matthew leaves this line completely out of his Sermon on the Mount, but I am so grateful Dr. Luke includes it. So, uh, Luke 6.38, TNIV, Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, the Greek word for bosom there, which the old King James uses, the Greek word is this. If you can look up here. It describes when, you, you know, you got this flowing garment on, your robe, because everybody wore robes then. Here's how you get that uh, bosom. You stoop down. They had their green. You know, these, you know the uh, grocery stores now, you can buy your green paper, plastic-saving bags, your own bags. You keep them in your own trunk. They had their own green bags back then. You reached down, you got the two ends of your garment, and you held it up. You said, I'd like some of that green. I'm taking it home right now. Do you have your green bag? I got it right here. So holding this thing up, the guy comes and said, all right, get over here. So you go over there to the, uh, to the merchant, and he's pouring the grain in. And he keeps pouring it in. And this thing's getting heavier because this, this is your bag. It's getting heavier. Well, wait, 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 wait. He's pouring in. How much did I get? Oh, there's more. Until you find it, you got this huge bag. It's your garment. And it's beginning to, it's pressing hard against you now. And it's starting to spill over. That's what Jesus is describing. When you give, it's like you pull up the edges of your garment. And God says, okay, were you a giver? Good. Watch this, boy. And he starts, whoa, 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 whoa. And it's spilling out of you. I can't even carry this. That's okay. That's the point Jesus is making. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, with that, with that metaphor, look at how, you, you know uh, Eugene Peterson, don't you? 
uh, the Message Bible. This is from the Message Bible. I love this. And you should have it in your study guide. So you get to keep this uh, quote from the Message Bible. Give, I like how Peterson puts it. Give away your life. Same verse, Luke, Luke 6, 38. Give away your life. You'll find life given back, but not merely given back. Given back with bonus and blessing. It's going to come back to you. I promise you. It'll come back to you, Jesus says. It'll be given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, it goes on, giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. A bonus, a blessing, generosity begets generosity. Give, and it will be given to you. You know that story about Elijah that we opened up with? You remember about Elijah and the economic crisis is going to affect God's people. Those of you that came in a little bit late. You remember uh, Elijah said uh, to Ahab, there's not going to be rain until you hear from me again, three and a half years. He goes out. What was the name of that little brook, by the way? Jabbok. He goes to Jabbok. Birds come with food. A little trickling water there kept him alive. But eventually, even God's people suffer in a time of crisis. So Elijah suffers. God says, I'm sorry, Elijah. We're all out of water. I'm not doing a miracle for you on the water part. I need you to go up there to Sidon. It's, it's pagan territory. When you get to Sidon, you'll know what you're going to do. I used to love this story. My dad used to tell the story to us as kids growing up. And you remember Elijah gets there. He has no clue. Now, what is God going to do? God will take care of you. That's what I know. But what's he going to do? And as he's getting to the edge of that little village, Zarephath, here is an old wood, uh, a bent-over widow. Not so old because she still has a little boy. And he says, she's just turning to go, Woman, you got any water? Man, I'm thirsty. This drought is awful, isn't it? She turns around. She can tell the garb of a holy man. She says, I'll get you some water. She has a few drops left, all right? I'll get you some water. Oh, and listen, while you're at it, would you mind getting me a little something to eat? I am starved. It's been a long trip. She starts to move. She freezes. She turns around. You remember the story? She turns around and she looks at the holy man. She says, actually, I need to tell you, sir, that right now I'm looking for a few sticks. I'm going to ignite a little fire because I have this much oil and I have this much flour. I'm going to make the last supper that my boy and I are going to eat. And then we're going to starve to death. And he looks into the face of that woman. He says, woman, on the authority of the God I serve, you make that food for me. And you will never be hungry again. She goes off. And with a drop of oil and a little pittance of flour, she makes the meal. And the oil never ran out. And the flour was never emptied. Give. How's that go? Give and it will be given to you. I love that story. Classic illustration. Generosity begets generosity. Jot it down. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. I need to read this first. So there was food every day for Elijah. Every day, by the way, for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Here's the point. If you make God first... He will make it last. Never forget that. If you make God first, He will make it last and last and last. 
Isn't that something? Unequivocal. That is clearly the meaning of that story. I, listen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I understand this is counterintuitive. I mean, how could the widow's giving up that little that she had possibly result in more than she could ever have dreamed of? I don't know. All I have is Jesus' word on it. What's Jesus' word on it? Give your life away and you'll find life given back to you. But not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. You want to know what the secret is to turning your economic surviving into thriving? Here it is. Secret number three. When living becomes giving, surviving becomes thriving. That's secret number three. When living becomes giving, surviving becomes thriving. In fact, jot this down. The happiest people on earth, rich or poor, are all givers. The happiest people. I didn't say you could, maybe, maybe I could find Dwight. I could find somebody who's happy and who's not a giver. You might be able to. However they understand happiness, they might be happy. I said the happiest people. Because I'll find somebody happier than that person you found. The happiest people on earth, whether they are rich or poor, are all givers. And by the way, they're also the healthiest. Jot that down. They're also the healthiest. Listen, Doc. Dentist, healthcare worker. This is true, isn't it? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm venturing into your field. Allow me to be there for just a moment. Uh, Larry Ulrey works in the social work department at Andrews University. Gave this material to me. This is, this is something. Jot it down. According to researchers at the Institute for the Advancement of Health, doing regular volunteer work increases life expectancy. If you thought that this was only about financial survival, no, no, no. This is about thriving, not just surviving. This is about thriving. We've got to move out of finances. You're going to be fine with your finances. We've got to bring in every realm of our lives as a part of this giving. Give, 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 give. Life expectancy actually increases when you're a volunteer. The research suggests that the feeling of warmth that results from helping others can be attributed, you know this, of course, endorphins in the brain. That feeling of warmth. Man, why, why am I so happy when I come back helping out at the community service center and that's when I should, be, I should be down here at the office? Why am I so happy when I volunteer and I'm spending, staying up late Friday night to get ready for that little crater roll Sabbath school in the morning, but when that Sabbath school is over, I feel so good. I go into church and I'm just feeling great. What's happening there, Dwight? What's happening is that warmth that you're feeling is your body confirming you were made for this. You were made to give. If you only get, you're the Dead Sea. And eventually they'll be able to float on top of you. The difference between Galilee, of course you know, all know this one. The difference between Galilee and the Dead Sea is one keeps and the other gives. Galilee gives. Dead Sea keeps. It's dead. Ah, it's those endorphins in the brain. Watch this. Since nerve cells are involved, since nerve cells involved are connected to parts of the body that fight infection, doing good can actually help your immune system. You're going to be healthier. There's going to be a boost to this. The residual is, is priceless. Another study conducted at the University of California Medical School, San Francisco, found that volunteering seems to increase self-esteem, foster a sense of competence, and fight off stress and depression. Isn't that amazing? It, it's almost as if we were wired to be givers, not getters. And yet Lucifer has gotten a hold of our society and the whole drive of society. Get, 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 get. And nobody's happy after they get. Nobody's happy. What's up with that? Xanax? Get. 
talking about thriving instead of simply surviving. And by the way, that thriving comes to the one who gives of himself, gives of herself. Watch this, give of your treasure. See, we're talking about treasure. We did for the first two secrets, all about treasure. But now we can talk about giving up of your time. Giving up of your talent. You got it. I love this here at the Amen Conference. Uh, Phil uh, Mills was telling me last night, he said, you know, Dwight, we, we don't, we don't uh, bring in special music. We got our own music. We don't care what the music is like. We got our own music. We want us to be sharing our talents here. Well, that's great. Give. You got something? You got it. God gifted you? Give it. Treasure, time, and talent. Give. Jesus doesn't qualify the kind of giving. He just says, give and it will be given to you. Generosity begets generosity. And by the way, unless you think this does not include the local church as one who belongs to the local church, I want to say to you, on behalf of the local church, I thank God for you who make the local church local. Do you understand that if the local church does not give, there is no local church at all? If the local church does not give, you won't have a local church there. When living becomes giving, surviving becomes thriving, the only reason there is a local church is because local Christians are local givers. That's it. I know that you are worn out by the time you come to Sabbath. I understand that. But I thank God for you, and on behalf of that little church that isn't far from where your practice is, I thank God for your willingness to immerse yourself in the life of that church. You don't get the strokes there, perhaps? okay. You don't get the recognition there? It's okay. You give there. You give there. And it will come back to you. It will come back to you so that you got both ends of your skirt in the air and it's, it's overflowing. Thank you for the way you give to the community of Christ and to His church in the local church. The whole paradigm. Giving is the paradigm of the kingdom of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Giving. I want to share this with you. This is a quotation. It's the last uh, quotation in your, uh, in your study guide. Isn't this something? What was this from uh, Review and Herald, 1896? Let us surrender ourselves a living sacrifice and give our all to Jesus. It is his. We are his purchased possession. Those who are recipients of His grace, who contemplate the cross of Calvary, will not question concerning the proportion to be given, but will feel that the richest offering is all too meager, all disproportionate to the great gift of the only begotten Son of the infinite God. Through self-denial, the poorest will find ways of obtaining something to give back to God. The poorest of us will have to find a way I just, I, I, I just have to give something to you, God. I know it isn't much, but I want to give to you. Got a tithe envelope the other day, turned into the church office. They said, Pastor, you need to open this one up. So they handed it to me. I opened it up. Tithe envelope. I spilled it out on my, uh, on my desk there at the Pioneer Memorial Church. It was a couple pennies and some colored beads. Just some little beads and in a childish scrawl for Jesus on it. 
Ladies and gentlemen, what does it matter how much you give? If you give out of the abundance of God's giving to you, how can we ever, ever, ever repay the one who has given everything to us? I got a church member. Her name is Madeline Johnson. Maybe some of you know Robert and Madeline Johnston. Anyway, Madeline and Bob, they're our associate head elders at Pioneer, retired seminary professor. Uh, Madeline was telling me about their daughter, Elizabeth. When Elizabeth was a little girl, she's married to the first chair of the London, I mean, of the Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles Symphony Orchestra. Her husband, Lyndon Taylor. Beautiful musician. L.A., those of you that are from uh, that area. Anyway, when Elizabeth was a little girl, she had, she had gone to Sabbath school and they had assigned the new memory verse. Remember those days when we actually memorized the memory verses? Yeah. <laughs> and so she had been assigned that new memory verse and uh, it was the memory verse, God loveth a cheerful giver. You remember that one? So, little Beth, all week long with her dollies, is practicing, is practicing that memory verse. But like little children do, the words, you know, sometimes can just get a little bit switched around. So all week long, Madeline hears her little Beth repeating to the dollies, say it after me, dollies, say it again, say it again, dollies, say it with me, God is a lovely, cheerful giver. <laughs> and when I heard that line, I said to myself, that is the gospel truth. God loveth the cheerful giver. Of course he does. But guess what? There's an even bigger truth behind it. God is a lovely, cheerful giver. Every morning when you wake up, he says, all right, how many breaths shall we give this guy today? Shall we let him breathe through the whole day? Huh? Hey, angel, how many heartbeats shall we give him today? How many heartbeats shall we give her today? Shall we give her every single heartbeat that she has coming to her? Yeah, what do you say? You guys in favor of this? All in favor, say aye. Good, live. And we live. We breathe. We live. Never a thank you, because I'm not thinking about it. This whole time for two hours, my heart's been beating and I never said thank you once to God. I just keep getting. I just keep getting. You know why? Because God is a lovely, cheerful giver. You don't even have to thank me, boy. I keep you alive. And then when you go to sleep, I'm going to drop your temperature. I'm going to drop the whole metabolism. I'm going to let you just lie there on the threshold. But I'll watch over you. And when that rooster begins to cock-a-doodle-doo, I'll be right there. And I'll ask the question again, shall we let him live today? Yeah, what do you say? Good, up. Let's go. I have given everything in the universe for you. Everything. Trust me. Trust me. I will take care of you. I don't care what you're going through right now. And some of you are going through a mess right now. Nobody here knows about it because you can go to these conferences. I go to them too, trust me. You go to the conference and the little manicured, well-manicured face says, fine, thank you, and you. Hey, how things been? So, fine, thank you, and you. How about you? Fine, thank you, and you. Fine, thank you. We got that down. <laughs> but sometimes it's not fine and it's not thank you what I'm going through inside. Some of you are going through some difficult times right now. I don't care what area of your life it is. It's difficult. And when it's difficult, it hurts. And when it hurts, you're distracted. And when you're distracted... Life's no fun at all. But you and I need to hear, because this is the greatest secret of all. This is the greatest number one secret in the universe. God will take care of you. He'll take care of you. 
It'll all be there when you get back on Monday. Nothing's changed in the office. That's okay. I'll take care of you. I will take care of you. So, as you head out of here into the Sabbath, you just breathe that little thank you to him. God, I can't believe this. You really do take care of me. God, we sing to you what our hearts believe and our minds know. You have never left us or forsaken us. And we sing by faith what will be the story for the rest of our journey. You will take care of us. And so for the man here who is wrestling, for the woman here whose heart is struggling, oh God, draw especially near and whisper the greatest truth of all. I will take care of you. Stay with me. Walk with me. I will take care of you. And one day, oh, there will be the loudest amen in the universe when bowed at your feet. We thank you in person for being true to your word. You did. You have taken care of us. In Jesus' name we praise you. Let all the people say, Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.